ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. to Hollywood, the most glamorous place in the world. Because nothing says glamour quite like a store where everything costs $5. I've been thinking this week about our first festival. How many of you were here in 2010? Well, I need to cover the lights to hear something. On, uh, on opening night in 2010, Robert Osborne welcomed you into this theater for a restoration of George Cukor's A Star is Born, Judy Garland and James Mason. I was across the street, poolside, at the Hollywood Roosevelt for a screening of Neptune's Daughter from 1949. Now, I got to bring out two of its stars, not only Betty Garrett, but Esther Williams. To say I was nervous it would be a disservice to crippling anxiety. What saved me, of course, was you people, your applause. Not for me, mind you, I got some lovely, respectful clapping, don't get me wrong. The applause was for Betty and Esther. And that moment when I heard that thunderous reception was a clear sign for me of what this festival is, what this festival means, this shared feeling that we all have, all of us in this room. From us at TCM, to you, to our guests, and then back around. The sense of community that we share has only intensified over these past 14 years, where I think remarkably, every piece of authentic Hollywood memorabilia in that store is still just $5. <laughs> How do they do it? One last quick 2010 memory. I made my first festival joke that night. Uh, it was promptly one up by Esther Williams, then 87. Uh, when Betty Garrett, 89, apologized for having a raspy voice caused by a cold, I told her that, no, it sounds sexy. <laughs> she said something like, oh, don't be silly, and then Esther cut in to tell her, hey, when a man tells you you're sexy, believe him. <laughs> so I think it'd be nice if we uh, took this moment to thank, uh, first of all, of you for that night, and to thank our late great friends, Betty Garrett and Esther Williams. Uh, this 14th festival is unique because, as Paula mentioned, we are celebrating the 100th birthday of, I believe, the defining studio of classic Hollywood. Yeah. MGM had the glitz, but Warner Brothers had the grit, and I will take grit over glitz every single day. The history of Warner Brothers is the history of Turner Classic Movies, where would the network be without our most aired film, Casablanca, also screening Sunday in this very theater? Uh, where would we be without A Star Is Born? Or, or A Star Is Born? Or A Star Is Born? Or, they're all good, all four of them are good. Warner's is the studio that marked the start of talkies and the end of Rico. It's a nice line, right? Come on, thank you. I'm not just saying these things because our CEO is backstage either. I am saying them because he is backstage with Steven Spielberg. <laughs> this is merely the start of a special weekend here. We'll be paying tribute to many special guests, including actor Russ Tamlin. 
production designer Patricia von Brandenstein. Film historian and writer Donald Bogle, who will become the fourth recipient of the Robert Osborne Award. Where is Donald? Donald Bogle, everybody. Plus so much more, but it begins tonight. Any list of great westerns must include our opening night picture, a classic directed by Howard Hawks, Rio Bravo. And we will be seeing a world premiere restoration made in partnership with Martin Scorsese's The Film Foundation. With that little important detail in mind, before we get to the film, I would like to welcome to the stage a few guests. Uh, Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zasloff and two of the finest directors to ever make motion pictures in any era, both board members of the Film Foundation, ladies and gentlemen, Steven Spielberg and Paul Thomas Anderson. significant amount of those resources were going to go uh, to TCM and the Film Foundation uh, to preserve movies that are 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. Why did you make that decision? Well, first, uh, thank you so much for coming. Um, I'm a fan just like you. If I wasn't here, I would be sitting with you. Um, I watch Turner Classic movies all the time, as Ben knows. Um, it's the history of our country. Um, first, the motion, motion pictures, there's nothing like it. Um, we come together, there's no other uh, medium where you come together. Most of the things we do, we do alone. But you go to the theater with a friend, there are people around you, the lights go out, and it's magic. It happened to me when I was very young in Brooklyn, and I would go on the weekends with my dad. And it's that idea of a story, and it could change the way you see yourself, the way you see the world. and. Uh, it's critically important, I think, particularly at this time, that we tell stories. Um, it's now the 100th anniversary of Warner Brothers. It's surreal, and I'm so lucky to be sitting uh, on top of this great historic company. But in the 30s, the Warner Brothers themselves did over 100 movies a year. So there was only radio, and people went to the theater, and they, if you lived on a farm in Oklahoma, you got, that's what New York looks like. And that's how you dress when you go out on a date. And for people in New York, that's what it's like to be on a farm. And yeah, movies taught people uh, the stories of America, the stories of the world, and um, in, in many ways, how to be an American. And so we have a great obligation. These are two of the greatest filmmakers of uh, the last, of our generation, of my generation. So I'm uh, so thrilled to be here. Um, and we're all in on the motion picture business. Uh, we want to tell a lot of stories that hopefully you all will go see and bring them to Main Street in America. We need it. 
So the, this partnership with uh, TCM, with Warner Brothers Discovery, and the Film Foundation, this is then Warner Brothers gets together with our head of programming, Charlie Tavish, and we work out which 10 movies. How does that, Stephen and Paul, uh, how does that process go? I mean, you, you know, you, this is uh, uh, the list of films that I guess you want to enter into this process is a lot bigger than 10. How do you pick them? Well, we have a board. You know, in 1990, Martin Scorsese put this entire film foundation together. <clears throat> he had discovered that half the silent films ever made had the nitrate that it was printed on, the, the actual printing stock that is run through projectors and shown in theaters had completely decayed and fallen apart. And so he launched a huge rescue operation and he enlisted a lot of filmmakers of the, of the time, Sidney Pollack, Stanley Kubrick, um, there, there were a lot of Francis Ford Coppola, myself, there were George Lucas, we all sort of joined him to go around all the studios to get them to try to finance this rescue operation to save our cultural heritage. And, um, and we've been doing that, we've, all, we've restored since 1990 about 997 films. Early on, the decision was made to restore films that we thought united a director, you know, um, uh, collected the body of work of that filmmaker, so nothing would be lost. And then we started to make decisions based on the, uh, the, the quality of, of, of the negative, what, what was still sur survivable. And, and then, you know, it's, we have a board and we all kind of make the decision. Margaret Brody of the Film Foundation, who manages everything, keeps me aware of titles that, you know, she, she would like to see restored. David and Warner Brothers have their own archive, uh, archivalists, and they have titles they'd like from the Warner Brothers archive to be, to be preserved. And every studio does have that. We try to find the films, not the films that are our favorite movies, but films that tell a very unique story of this country and, and the people of this country and not only this country, but, but we're, we're rescuing experimental films, documentaries, we're rescuing international films now. We have a whole, we've already rescued 97 international films. So this is something that's not going to stop. And, um, and I'm just, I have to just say, I'm so proud that Marty, we were all very busy making our movies in 1990 and Marty put everything aside and said, no, this takes, this is, we, we're prioritizing this. This is what needs to be done. Paul. You know, I suspect that there's people in this audience who are like uh, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. There, there is a television in, in, in Paul's home that the sound is down, but it is on TCM all the time, like you. Uh, he, uh, you have understood right from as soon as you started making movies in your 20s that the history of this business mattered and was worth preserving. Well, you know, um Sometimes it goes even beyond the history of the business. It, 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 it ends up, I don't want to get philosophical, but it starts to end up being the protection of memories, like very, very important memories that we each individually have. Where was I when I saw E.T.? I, I remember it very well, and I remember the friends I was with, and I remember who I took to see that film as much as I remember the film. So they're memories of our life. It's not, it, yes, it's, it's it's the preservation of our work, but it's also preserving our memories. 
at helping us to preserve those memories so that when you want to revisit that moment or that feeling of when you walk into a theater, you can. Um, you, you, you know, we all want to hold on to our memories, but sometimes they fade away from us and we can, we can hold on to them if we preserve them this way. I'm, uh... Uh, that was uh, that was moving. Thank you. Um, uh, by the way, uh, 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 Stephen mentioned uh, Margaret Bodie. Uh, she's here uh, from the Film Foundation Executive Director. Margaret, uh, thank you very much. For Margaret. And uh, uh, another uh, board member uh, is here as well, a filmmaker of uh, some significant note. The great Alexander Payne is here uh, somewhere. By the way, last night I uh, interviewed uh, uh, Laura Dern uh, uh, and Diane Ladd, and, and, <laughs> and apparently uh, uh, Alexander and Laura talked Diane into doing a little bit part in Alexander's film, Citizen Ruth, and uh, Diane's message was that, uh, uh, I'll do it, but he owes me, and she wanted me to tell you, Alexander, that uh, you still owe her. Uh, <laughs> And she plans to cash it in. I don't know what that means. But uh, um, so, uh, uh, by the way, uh, Alexander and George Stevens are, are going to be here at the festival uh, doing uh, Penny Serenade. George Stevens Jr. That's going to be great too. And George Stevens Jr. is here tonight. So, uh, what's the, you know, this was 10 Warner Brothers films that we picked, uh, among them uh, Rio Bravo, East of Eden. Uh, the process uh, has got to be incredibly challenging. Right? I mean, how does it, I mean, in a short answer to, to layman out here, uh, Paul and Stephen, how does it happen? How does it, how, what happens? How does it begin? And by the way, are there arguments when you go about, like, do you ever leave that meeting pissed? You know? <laughs> I can't believe Spielberg's wants to restore Rio Bravo. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. Um, no, I pretty much rubber stamp whatever Marty wants. <laughs> We let Marty do the talking, <laughs> and we all nod, and, and we just agree with him. And I must say, I will say, um, there was a first on our, our last board meeting, there was a moment, a historic moment, when Marty said, he mentioned the title, and he said, um, I've actually never seen it. And everybody just gasped, because there's nothing he hasn't seen. Uh, I don't remember what the title was, but we all kind of... Ben Hur. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's we, we follow Marty. You know I can remember a moment. I, you know what, what what can happen? What has happened in the past? I just remember one instance. Uh, you know there's a great Max Ophuls movie called Caught. Robert Ryan, Barbell Geddes, and and we all know it and love it. But you know I can remember uh, many years ago re realizing that you know it was hard to find on DVD. It was hard. It was hard to get. And I brought it up, and that became something that we pursued. Um, you know, um, it, it can, can kind of happen like that. I mean, we're working on a top copy um, because Chris Nolan brought that up, the sort of condition that that was in. And we, we follow Marty, but every once in a while, I think we all chime in with something and just say, you know, there's something that's been nagging at me, and mention it to Margaret. And, I, I've had, a, you know, I, I, you know, I, I was not able to find even a good, uh, uh, even a good VHS cassette copy of the only film Marlon Brando ever directed, uh, One Eye Jacks, and there was a, uh, which, which is an incredible film, 
one of my favorite westerns. I was never able to see a good copy, even on television. It, it looked it looked like it was in desperate need of repair. And so we set about to restore that, and uh, that was a really hard restoration. But what's really important is that there's there's a there's a there's a a, a very healthy negative. There's somewhere a good inner negative, or there's some inner positives. But we're talking about we're still talking about chemistry. These are chemical elements, and we can draw all of our digital work from the actual you know chemistry of of the medium of, of celluloid. And so you need that. What, what we we don't do is we don't take a a a DVD of a movie and then restore the DVD. We we need the virgin elements of the film. That's why certain films it's very very hard to restore. But luckily, that had a really good negative. That was a very healthy negative. You know, when, when, when I think of what we need to do, what our obligation is to, to, to move forward in the spirit of Warner Brothers, I think of three films. Um, Black Legion, which was filmed in the 30s, um, which took a lot of courage at the time, but it was a movie that stood up against the KKK. Um, Warner Brothers was actually sued for showing the uh, the Ku Klux Klan's insignia, and uh, they won the case. And uh, Confessions of a Nazi Spy, uh, which was against certain, there was a, uh, there was guidelines for what content, uh, for, for how content, subject matter of content. And we were actually taking input in the 30s from some, some of the European governments. And uh, the Warner Brothers, uh, Cass Warner is here, her grandfather Harry uh, was at the studio at the time. But they, that was the first movie uh, that talked about what was going on in Germany. Um, and uh, after the war, uh, Gentleman's Agreement, and I mentioned Gentleman's Agreement with Gregory Peck, because I actually, I think I called Stephen when I saw it, because uh, it was right at the time when there was a, a big incident with Kanye West, and we were questioning this whole moment we're in in America with hate of other. Um, and Turner Classic Movies put on uh, gentlemen's agreement and I think you were in front of it talking about um, the subject was a reporter went undercover as a, as as someone who was Jewish and uh, the, the, the relevance uh, we tell stories to entertain but a lot of what you do and what the history of film does is it's a way for us to heal and it's a way for us to say what's okay and what's not okay well um David, it, uh, it does matter uh, to all of us uh, uh, that, we, uh, uh, that we have somebody in front of this company who cares about uh, these movies. Uh, thank you for that very much. Uh, and Paul Thomas Anderson and Steven Spielberg, thank you for all you guys have done and the new movies you create and your, your, your keen eye always on the past. So uh, thanks, uh, David, Paul, Steven. Thanks, everybody. And uh, you guys stay right where you are, because uh, up next, uh, the woman many of us have been waiting all our lives for. Uh, she is the star of Rio Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, Angie Dickinson. And I'm going to need you to keep this up until Angie is sitting down there.
You got a chair for this old broad? <laughs> How are you? Love this man. You might as well know it right up front. Well, I, uh, I, I have never enjoyed uh, conversations more than I enjoy talking to you. Um, because I was describing it out there on the red carpet. They were like, why do you like Angie so much? Which is like the dumbest question anybody's ever asked. Um, but it's, and I was like, look, she's authentic, she's honest, and she's a little dangerous, right? There's always this little element of danger, mystery. You don't know. Um, I got some idea now. The, uh, so um, uh, this was this Rio Bravo uh, picture, uh, Howard Hawks, uh, uh, this was a seminal moment for you, right? This was a turning point in your career? Oh, without question. I, I would be working at Seas Candy, I'm sure, if I hadn't been picked up by Howard Hawks. Were you working at Seas Candy before? No, I just go there a lot. <laughs> How did it come to pass? How did he... Seas candy? Uh, yeah, yeah. Seas candy. What's your favorite seas candy? I like the molasses chip. Oh, it's too small. <laughs> See, that was a little dangerous, wasn't it? Like a little. I don't even really know why, but it was. It's so good to have you back. Oh my goodness, you've been so busy. Yeah, he's wonderful. So, how did, I mean, you were a working actress, you'd been in some movies, you'd done a couple of guest uh, TV appearances, how did, uh, you know, this big time director, this was a big, important film for Hawks, he'd taken a couple of years off, this is the picture he wanted to come back with, with John Wayne, how did he find you, how did this come to pass that you got cast in Real Rubble? Uh, well, I, I'm trying to think if I was in, under contract for, no, I went to Warner Brothers under contract, uh, he sold it. And uh, that's where I went afterwards. Uh, I guess I was just on that list of, uh, let's test a few people. And uh, I was one of them. And I uh, had to uh, do a screen test. I'm thinking of a football player, and I can't remember his name. Uh, of course, this was, will be one of many things I can't remember tonight. A football player, well, I was about to say. At, U, at no, USC, early. but the, well, he was a very, very popular football player. So he played the part of John Wayne. And, uh, and uh, I did the test and I got it. And, and I was, uh, I don't know who else did, I doubt if anybody did. But Howard was a very deliberate man. He spoke like this, and he worked like this. <laughs> and uh, he, he just, uh, he kept at me, now you're pretty good, but you can be better. And then he just kept helping me, and I finally did the screen test, and uh, uh, got the part. And, and, and was he for the great movie? Was he encouraging as a director? Then, once you were in Tucson and you're, you're shooting the movie, was he supportive then, or was he mostly was he critical? Uh, he was he he was a man of few words. Uh, once we he just said uh, you know just relax guys and told the crew to just relax and he and I just talked there and uh, sat there and talked about nothing 
It was just to relax me and get me to the point that he wanted me to be for the scene. You, uh... By the way... Yes, ma'am. By the hour, you don't want to pay for what that talk took. Because the whole crew just sat there. I have one picture of the guy on the camera going... <laughs> so, uh, John Wayne, uh, uh, Dean Martin, uh, uh, Walter Brennan, uh, Ricky Nelson, this was a, this was a boys' men's movie. Right, Howard Hawks. Was it? Were you accepted uh, by your fellow actors? By whom? By your fellow actors. Were 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 Duke and 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 Dean Martin, Ricky Nelson? Were they all good to you? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, they were. You, know, you never. Uh, you you don't hang around on a set. Uh, I don't. Anyway, uh, sure they were. By not being against me, they were for me. All right, all right. Did, uh, didn't you, they played cards a lot, right? Didn't they? Yeah, Dean and, uh, no, Dean and, um, uh, who's that, uh, John Wayne. Uh, <laughs> He's a big, tall guy. Yeah, yeah. That one. They played chess. We shot uh, the opening, you know, on a, most movies you shoot the exteriors first because you've got to go with the weather and you, it's very unpredictable. And Dean and... Uh, <laughs> John Wayne. John. Duke. You don't, he was never called John. Duke. Did you call him Duke right away? Duke? Do you call him Duke? Oh, nothing else, ever. Right. Yeah, nobody. <laughs> you wouldn't dare. All right. <laughs> and they played chess uh, all the time. You know, when there's a lot of lighting going on and you just have to either read a book or... Uh, you know, it's really tough to wait and wait and wait, and that's what we did. <laughs> so, the, uh, uh, did you play, did they, were you ever included in these games? Were you ever, I realize chess is a two-person game, I'm not an idiot, but were you, did, you, uh, did, you, did you ever play chess uh, with them? Oh, no, no. No? No. I thought you guys played poker. Why do I, did poker? you, did you ever play poker with them? Uh, what? Did you ever play poker with 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 John with Wayne? Them? No. With them? No. No, I no. You I play now though. Oh yeah. 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 I, I think you want to join us. I badly want to join. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd be wonderful. So, but this uh, the you know there's a you have a number of scenes with you and John Wayne. Was he a uh, you know he's John Wayne by 1959. He is a big deal in your. Was he, uh, was, he, uh, was he good to you, kind, was he a good, did you, what was this experience yeah, like? He was very patient, and uh, Howard is a man that could just stand there for 10 minutes and not say anything, and you just wait for whatever was gonna come next. Uh, and uh, uh, Duke would always just go off and play uh, cards with Dean, or chess. I think they might have played chess. And uh, they, that was at least on, on location. Uh, what's your question? No, you got it. I just was curious how, how John Wayne was. So this is what I wanted. So I was reading today that, uh, I think it was Variety, that said your performance here as Feathers in Rio Bravo was reminiscent of Lauren Bacall in To Have and Have Not. Whoa. That's pretty good, right? Yeah. So, um, and then I also read, which I did not know, and I never brought this up, that Howard Hawks' first choice for, the, for John Wayne's drunk partner, Dean Martin's role, and he's wonderful in it, um, 
was, a, was an actor named Frank Sinatra. And I was curious whether you ever met him. <laughs> Thank God I did. That was a honey bunch to, to hold. <laughs> he was wonderful and yes, I think, I, I think he was the love of my life. Frank was. Well, that's very nice. I, never, I didn't expect that. That's nice. Do you think about him? These days at all? Yeah, I have uh, Google, you know, not the Google, what's the thing? Siri? Sure, Siri, yeah. I've got Siri, and I got my Frank all day long. Oh, you're playing. Oh, come on, that's the sweetest damn thing I've heard. That's fantastic. Uh, I could talk to you, Angie, forever, but we, we've gone way over, and I, I need to start the movie. But I want to thank you for coming. I want to thank you for always uh, being honest and, and for delivering these performances in the movies and on television that, that matter so much to me and, and matter so much to these people. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Angie Griffinson. Um, the House Four crowd is not like any other at this festival. Every uh, film here is a 35 millimeter print. Uh, so uh, we're really excited that you're here. Um, I do have a few announcements, so while I'm making these, please go ahead and silence uh, your cell phone or whatever device you have. And also, and you guys are like the best police of this, but no screens on during the presentation. We have a screen. This is the screen we need. I want to thank City, the official card of the festival, uh, for their 10 years of support. We could not do this festival without them. And if you have not been up to uh, the uh, Legion Theater at Post 43, it's a remarkable venue. And we do have shuttles again departing from behind Madame Tussauds on a loop. Um, so I do encourage you guys to check out um, shows up there. Um, it's now my pleasure to introduce our special guest for this morning's presentation. He's been on Broadway. He's been at Carnegie Hall. He's been in some of our favorite movies and TV shows. And most importantly, he's here this morning. Please welcome actor, comedian, and a good friend at TCM, Mario Canton. Well, hello! Oh, it's 9.30 in the friggin' morning. What are you all doing here? Aren't you hungover? I had one cocktail because I knew I had to get up and be with you all, and I didn't want to speak to you through a haze of tequila. <laughs> tequila residue, actually. Um, well, so, uh, I, I, <laughs> the old maid. I watched this again, you know, I watched this the, um, again uh, about a week ago, and I thought I, I hadn't seen it, and then I was like, oh, this crazy-ass picture. <laughs> That's right. I remember this. Um, you know, I mean, it came out in 1939, which Betty Davis had four movies that came out that year. Juarez and, uh, and uh, The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex and uh, a few others. Dark Victory. Dark, dark Victory. And, come quickly, they want to operate on my head. <laughs> Look at the clouds are coming Funny, isn't that the most hyper death scene in the world? She's, I don't know how she died after all that energy. I have no idea. Anne, look, the clouds are coming in. Funny, I can still feel the sun on my hands. Go now, Anne, be my best friend. And when I die, have champagne and be gay. Be very, very gay. <laughs> and then she dies. How? That's why I love that movie, but it never moved me. I'm like, she can't die. No one dies that way. She throws the dog down the 
the steps. She had enough energy to throw the dog down the steps. Let me die alone. Go now. But this movie is so friggin' nuts because I'll tell you what it is. You know, everyone knows that Miriam Hopkins, who plays her sister Delia, which is actually the name of Victor Bono's mother and baby Jane, so that gives you a hint how friggin' crazy she was in real life. Miriam Hopkins, you see the mental illness in her eyes through her performance. She's out of her friggin' mind, this woman. And if you spoke to Davis, she was like, first of all, well, she... She, you know, she she didn't like Betty Davis because she thought she was having an affair with her husband. Um, what was his name? Anton Lutvik or something like that. Um, yeah, that's who it was, right? And, and she, she, they hated each other. They just didn't like. And she, and, and she said, she, Betty Davis said she tried to steal all the scenes we had together. She really did, and I would not allow it. And if you also look, Betty Davis ages in this movie. Miriam Hopkins would not friggin' age. She wouldn't age. I mean, Betty Davis looks like the ghost of Christmas future at the end, and Miriam Hopkins looks like, you know, a Barbie doll. It is very weird. And you just see that crazy fire in Miriam Hopkins' eyes. You, it's just like needy, crazy. It's so, it's, and, and she, I think that was her way of trying to steal every, every scene. And if only, you know, Betty Davis talked about a lot of people that she disliked. Um, she she pulled no punch. You know, she did not like Faye Dunaway. She was like, Faye Dunaway was totally and utterly impossible. Yes, she was. What movie did they do together? Amy Simple McPherson, where I played her mother. She played Amy Simple McPherson. And there we were in a hot church one day, thousands of extras sitting there with their boxed lunches, waiting for Miss Dunaway. One hour. Two hours, three goddamn hours. Oh yes, I had to entertain the troops. I sang, I've written a letter to Daddy. Finally, Miss Dunaway shows up after 3.5 hours. And I said, did you get your eyeliner on correctly at this point, Miss Dunaway? That's a great story, but the story she could have told about, about Miriam Hopkins, you know, and how crazy she was. You know, Ernst Lubitsch had this movie first, and he was going to do it with Judith Anderson, who did it on Broadway. Um, uh, it was a Pulitzer Prize winning play. Um, and believe me, it's entertaining. It's great. It's And Betty Davis... She's never bad. She's magnificent in this. And she does the job the way it's supposed to be done. I love that she had no vanity. You know, she claimed that Crawford had a lot of vanity, although I'm the biggest Joan Crawford fan. Um, so we would have probably had an argument about that. Um, so she wouldn't know, but I love Miss Crawford. She was totally horrible. In Baby Jane, she wore a different set of breasts every day. It was like running into the goddamn Hollywood Hills. All right, I could spend all day with you because you're like the great. Why are the 9.30 a.m. crowds the best?
well, I don't want to go, but I have to. Uh, so, because they have other movies they have to show on the screen later. I could go on singing. I could. Uh, thank you for welcoming me. I, th I love this. I love being part of TCM so much you have no idea. Like, I had to. I was like Eve Harrington. I had to get in there. Make them love me. I mean, I really... It was my, you know, I, I always said if I, you know, handled my career the way I handled becoming part of TCM, I would be a superstar. But instead, I chose this because this is so important to me. These films that they preserve, that they show, you know. And all the hosts are amazing. And, you know, I love my Ben Mankiewicz. And today I'm cheating on him with Eddie Muller because we're doing East of Eden at 11.45. Which Ooh, you said that like an Italian woman at a wedding. Ooh. Anyway, okay, well, from 1939, The Old Maid, starring Betty Davis, Miriam Hopkins, totally impossible, and um, George Brent, and uh, directed by um, uh, Edmund Goulding, and uh, screenplay by some guy named Robinson, I believe. Anyway, um, I can't retain. I'm Forget it. It's 9.30. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. The Old Maid. To be back, huh? Big screen. Uh, well, Carol Lombard, Clark Gable. Loved them separately, loved them together. And here for the first and only time. And I'm grateful to see them on the big screen. Now, that handsome brute is how MGM's Frances Marion described Gable the very first time she saw him on Broadway in 1928. She went to bat for him with production chief Irving Thalberg, as did Lionel Barrymore. But Th Thalberg took a look at him and said, I don't know, he's got big bad ears, I don't like <laughs> so, But he screen tested him for a film in the South Seas, and having a hibiscus around his ear did not help. <laughs> anyway, Thalberg d did notice this growing chorus of women who were raving about him, so he relented and gave the actor a one-year, $650, a week contract. Gable appeared in a dozen films that first year, playing all kinds of characters, opposite the likes of Jean Harlow, Greta Garbo, Norma Shear, Joan Crawford. Gable proved his star power, and Thalberg got more than his money worth. The one person who had trouble believing his good luck was Gable himself. When Ralph Bellamy arrived at MGM in that rush of stage actors who had proven their readiness for talkies, he met Clark early on as they both were in the Secret Six. Bellamy had been signed the very day after he replaced Walter Houston on Broadway. That poor stage, I mean, they just one way tickets, I'm telling you. Gable warned Bellamy, this can't last. I'm not buying anything I can't put on the train back to New York. I'm telling you, this just can't last. But of course, it did last. Gable took his acting seriously while keeping self-deprecating sense of humor. Anita Luce loved telling a story of finding him at a studio drinking fountain with his dentures in his hand. Oh, no. Look, he said as he flashed a toothless smile, it's the king of Hollywood. <laughs> now, 
Carol Lombard was 23 when she made No Man of Her Own, and she was still finding her path. Born Jane Alice Peters in Indiana, like so many other girls, she came to Hollywood as a young teen with her mother when her parents separated. Over five years, she jumped between Fox and Senate and Pathé and back to Fox again before signing with Paramount in 1930. That same year, she married William Powell. And while they were only husband and wife for a little over two years, they stayed great friends for the rest of her life. It was he who suggested her to co-star with him and my men Godfrey several years later. The director, Greg LaCava, adored her, and she thrived under his light-handed direction. She cared about her work and her friends and had a mouth that would make a sailor blush. <laughs> I love this woman. I should, I should also throw in that I ended up meeting um, Martha Laura, who was Frances Marion's secretary for like 20 years, but only after my book came out, and which was a killer. But before, she, she and I became close friends. She passed at 104, God love her. And we had 15 years together of, of friendship. She lived out in Banning. Well, before she worked for Frances, she had worked for William Powell for about three years. And when he was married, part of the time when he was married to Carol. And he, she just raved about both of them. She said Carol would treat crew members, studio bosses, exactly the same. And what you saw was what you got, that she was just, just a doll to be around. I always really appreciated uh, Martha's take on that. Because, you know, secretaries, man, they know a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Now, a story I found repeated several times about this movie was that we have William Randolph Hearst to thank for bringing Clark and Carol together on the screen. Marion Davies wanted Bing Crosby as her co-star in Going Hollywood, and the singer, the story goes, was under exclusive contract with Paramount. Hearst talked Mayer into swapping Crosby for Gable. It was a nice, tight story, and I was excited to include it. But then I took a deep dive with my friend Laura Gabriel, who I think is here today, uh, who did the book on Murray and Davies. And we learned that Crosby didn't sign with Paramount until more than a year after this movie was made. Well, obviously, we decided to stop repeating that story. And thanks to Alan Ellenberger, who wrote the book on Miriam Hopkins, I learned she was supposed to play the Lombard part, but Nick picked the script and didn't think the role was complex enough for her, so she walked, clearing the way for Carol. Hardly a day goes by, I am not grateful for my extended family of historians. It takes a village. And those were the days. This treatment was purchased on August 6, 1932, and the film was released four and a half months later. I mean, they turned him out. It was written by two old pros, Eddie Goulding and Benjamin Glazer, and directed by Wesley Ruggles, the younger brother of actor Charlie Ruggles. But this is no instance of a family member sneaking in the back door. Wesley was an accomplished director of over 80 films, starting with Silence in the Teens, and going on to direct such various genres as Cimarron and I'm No Angel. No Man of Her Own is not an over-the-top pre-code like Red-Headed Woman or Jewel Robber. In fact, parts of it are just downright sweet. <laughs> However, the code was starting to hang over the studio's heads, and the title was changed from No Better of Her Own 
to no manner. <laughs> to give Joe Breen one less thing to complain about. Now, Breen was already at the Hayes office, but yet to have the real enforcement power, he would wage for over 20 years, between 1934 and 1954. The film has a few overt moments, Carol walking around in her underwear, Gable eyeing her on the ladder, sitting on her bunk on the train, or him in the shower. That's a good one. <laughs> I kept flashing on little but important pre- and post-code differences in the scenes here, and, for instance, it happened one night. The two stars sparkle on screen and are a joy to watch, yet their affair did not start until three years after this film was made and Paramount reissued No Man of Her Own with a few tweaks from Breen to take advantage of the promotion of them as a couple. We know they had precious few years together. They were married in 1939, Carol was killed in 1942 in an airplane crash alongside her mother as they returned from a war bond rally in Indiana. Gable was devastated. He joined the Army Air Force soon after and stayed in the service for three long years. Theirs was a real love story and a real tragedy, and so we are so lucky to have this glorious record of the two of them together. And God loved Case Spreckles, Clark's widow, who buried him next to Carol at Forest Lawn when he died in 1960. Please enjoy Carol and Clark and their young, glorious selves in No Man of Their Own. Hi, everybody. been a fun day for me because I earlier this afternoon interviewed Rebecca De Mornay for the 40th anniversary of Risky Business, then Candy Clark and Richard Dreyfuss for the 50th anniversary of American Graffiti, and now you for the 60th anniversary of Beach Party. Does it does that sound right that it was six years ago, or does that amaze you? Uh, I thought it was about 90 years. To <laughs> Anybody hear me out there? Yeah. Okay. All right. Tell me, do you? Uh, have you seen this movie lately? No. <laughs> I didn't think you'd recognize me without my bathing suit on. <laughs> no, you know what? We made that film 60 years ago. From time to time, gave us, you know, we, we, we surfed the channels uh, and, and, and Beach Party would be there. And it's, uh, it's always good to see because to me, it still holds up, except for one thing. What? The dancing. Dancing is a little bit different, a lot different. But as far as the story and everything, it's always fun to watch. They have fun things to do. Well, you mentioned the dancing, but I mean, I definitely take note of the number Don't Stop Now. The dance moves are great. Did that, when you think back to that, did that come naturally? Did you have to work hard at that and work with this choreographer, or were you just allowed to do your thing? No, I think just, uh, I just did my thing then, you know. But you know what? made those films, believe it or not, 15 days. Imagine that, you know, films uh, in the last 20 years or so, you know, they're on location, they're here, there, and they're there for months and months at a time, a year maybe sometimes. We made those films in 15 days. That's amazing. We would shoot, I don't know how many scenes we'd do, 30 setups, 40 setups in a day. You know, you say, I, I would say to Bill Asher, who was the director, you know, Bill, maybe Frankie should say this. He said, come on, just go have some fun. Come on, let's do it. Come on. Next setup. And that's how we made those films. Wow. We were really 
a group of friends, everybody from all the pictures that we made, seven or ten, like you said, uh, everybody was in the same picture. We were all doing the same thing, so it was fun. It was, it was really fun. So when you say 15 days of shooting, how did that incorporate you being able to learn the, the songs, the, there's always new songs, to record them? I mean, how far in advance did you do that? No, you learned on the set. Come on, <laughs> I, I swear. We would go in, say I would be doing a scene with Annette, uh, and then we were out of a scene for a while, so we'd go to the next sound stage, and they would have a piano player there, and we'd start to learn this song here, and then, and then a choreographer there. So then we go back in, and then we would go back and do that scene, and we just we practice, you know. It was that kind of a thing. It was like a stage show, really. Did you ever feel like, oh, it's just too much to do in two weeks' time, or were you young and enthusiastic and gung-ho? Well, at 23, it was fun. You know, uh, we, we just had, I'm telling you, friends, it was an absolute ball, and it came off on the screen. Sure. And, and people just loved it. We never thought that we would have the success of longevity. All these years, and the success of these pictures, we first had, I think, I think the numbers, and I can talk about the numbers, pictures now grows 300 million, 500 million, a billion dollars. But in those days, 60 years ago, our films were made for $350,000. And we were grossing, those films were grossing somewhere between 15 and $18 million. Now, you, you, you take a picture today, you want to go see a movie, how, how much does it cost, Dave? Probably no better than I do. For an average movie? I mean, it depends on the type of movie, but I mean, at least, if anything, it's a studio film, at least 30 Sometimes a hundred, sometimes two hundred. No, no, I'm talking about for a, for a ticket. Uh, Someone who wants to buy a ticket to go and see a picture. I think it's like thirteen bucks now. Thirteen, fifteen dollars. I don't know what it is. But our our films were seventy-five cents a dollar, and you still post all that. And yeah. So they were very successful. Wow. Do you remember first meeting Annette Funicello? Yeah, I do. Together. As a matter of fact, it was not on the beach. It was close by where we are right here in Hollywood. It was at the Hollywood Bowl. All right, so I was a whippersnapper when this one was made. I was 19 or 20 years old um, when we shot Muppet State Manhattan. And um, it was actually the first Muppet movie that I actually did work on the, on the whole film. I took a break from college. And... Um, and uh, I was working, I'm just gonna say what I was doing, I'm gonna talk about the movie, because I didn't make the movie, I worked on the movie. I, um, I worked in the mechanical puppetry department under Foz Fazakis, who was the um, genius who created all the sort of radio-controlled puppets, um, any string puppet uh, rigs, specialty items, and special, what we would call special puppet rigs. So that means what I worked on with that group on this movie was almost exclusively the rats. So all of the, so all of the rats who were cooking in the kitchen, if you see rats running across the floor, that would be, I did a break where it's, which I think it's a three second shot where rats run out of the Sardi's restaurant and it took me like three months to build the rig that could do that. But, um, but that's what I was doing. So I was, I was a young kid. It was uh, really fun for me and exciting. And, and it was exciting for us to be able to do a Muppet movie in New York. Um, most Muppets was, were not shot in New York other than Sesame Street. 
So this film, this is uh, Frank Oz's, um, this is his Muppet movie. Um, he's a, a very careful uh, filmmaker, and I have the honor of remastering all the Muppet movies as they come up, and they need to be remastered. Um, I don't know, you're probably, you may be showing an original film print, so, but it means I do know all the Muppet movies really well. And Frank Oz's work is so extraordinarily, so extraordinarily careful. I said, worded that incorrectly. He's a very precise, precise filmmaker. Every scene transition is so carefully thought out. And it's quite interesting, because this is the, the first Muppet movie was Jim Frawley directing. It was really like a co-directing with my dad. He, he obviously was the Muppet guy, and he was really telling Jim all the time what he wanted to do. So it was really Jim and Jim directing the first Muppet movie. And then my dad directed the second Muppet movie, and his style, in Great Muppet Caper, is, is a very loose style. It's kind of, let's see what happens. Things can go wrong, and if they go wrong, that's fun. We'll put it in the movie. So his movies are a little crazier, a little more chaotic. And then Frank comes in, does the third Muppet movie, and the precision is really extraordinary. But, because Frank is so precise, it meant my dad had not much to do. So, he was a little frustrated. It was like Frank was all over the script, Frank was all over the shooting, you know, and, and he had it all worked out. So, my dad really put most of his attention to two sequences in the movie that he directed um, as a second unit director. And, and he did uh, the Muppet Babies sequence. And, and then, of course, that spun onto uh, the show that is still going on today, Muppet Babies. And he also concentrated on the rats cooking in the kitchen sequence, which, uh, we, which is extraordinary. And so that was what, what my dad did. But um, if you had told me then, when I was 19, that I would be directing the next Muppet movie, I would have absolutely said you're insane. Uh, I didn't even consider myself on a directing track when I was 19. Um, but Christmas Carl was the next theatrical uh, Muppet movie made. My dad, did, my dad and Frank made Muppet 3D, Muppet Vision 3D, which is a... In, But um, yeah, so that's about it. I, it's really, it's really extraordinary. Frank really showed what an extraordinary director he is when when he made this movie, and and it's seeing this movie that can can tell you why he's a director who would be capable of making Little Shop of Horrors, which is easily the most complicated movie I've ever worked on. So this is really Frank's movie. Um, and welcome, and enjoy it, and here it is. It was, was they met in an agent's office they, when they were doing the rounds, what you would do during the 50s, and this particular agent, um, they were, he was with, Jerry was with another person who he wanted to make his comedy partner, but they didn't have the chemistry, and then Anne walked in, and um, she was this beautiful, tall, red-headed woman, and he immediately fell in love with her and ditched the other woman. And um, he went in, she actually, Anne went in first to the agent's office, and she came out crying. This is what Jerry says. And he said, what's wrong? What happened? And he, she said, well, he chased me around the room. I didn't know what I was doing. He chased me around the room. And so he got a little upset. He went in, 
And he said, what are you doing chasing that young woman around the room? And he said, well, now it's your turn. I'm going to chase you around the room. So <laughs> this is the story that Jerry tells. I don't know if it's true. <laughs> and then he left um, and asked her out for coffee. And they went out to coffee at Langley's, Longley's, Langley's Cafeteria. If anyone's in New York or you know that cafeteria. And she, he said that she stole the silverware while they were having her <laughs> first date because she needed silverware for her apartment in the village. That, is, that was their first date. I love that story. And Richard, take us back to a, a balmy summer evening in 1977. How did you meet George Q. I knew at, the, at that time in 1977, I was a writer, photographer, magazine editor, and I had done a story on Jamie Hurley, who wrote Midnight Cowboy. And Jamie called me up and said he liked the interview and um, would I mind coming to dinner? So a few days later, he called me and he said, would you mind picking up one of my guests who doesn't drive any longer? And I said, no, not at all. He lives over near you and his name is George Cukor. And I'm thinking to myself, George Cukor? I thought he was dead. <laughs> and, uh, so I drive over to Cordell Drive, go up to his house, and I'm thinking, I, there, there was a little phone, you push the button, the door buzzed, I opened it, I thought I was going into the house, and instead I was just going into the garden, and up at the top of the stairs was George, and his first words to me were, how about a drink? <laughs> and I said, well, I don't really know whether we have time. We've got to get to Silver Lake. And he said, well, yes, you're right. So I get him down. And at that time, I had a gold 64 L convertible. It was a beautiful summer night with the top down. And I looked at him, and I thought, let's get him in the car and put that top up. He's not going to. So he would start the, I start the engine, and here's the whir of the motor. And he says, no, 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 I love an open car. So I thought, okay, so we drive down to the strip, turn left, and there, in this beautiful glow, I'm thinking to myself, I better not have an accident with this Academy Award winner in the front seat. And suddenly, I'm holding up the wheel, and suddenly this finger and hand dart across, marvelous, marvelous. And I'm thinking, you know, what is it? And I look over at, um, at the, uh, uh, not the whiskey, the whiskey and go-go, I guess it was, and there, were a there was a whole line of the most beautiful blonde surfers <laughs> lined up to get in there. And I'm looking at the surfers, and I'm looking at this, as he would say, elderly gent, and I'm going back and forth, and I'm just thinking, huh, this is, this is the oldest gay man I've ever met. <laughs> Well, George was 78 when I met him. I was 27, and he needed, I, I worked for Air France, I knew a little of the travel industry and so on, and, and he needed someone who could be a lieutenant and sort of give him this sort of smooth passage from A to B, and he was getting a lot of invitations at that time of his life to go to London and Asia even, and so he just needed someone who could smooth the way for him, and, and I was that person. He, need, he could never, you could never have dropped off L, uh, George off at LAX and expect him to get on a plane to London alone. It just wasn't going to happen. In fact, we got thrown off a few places. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to come back to yeah, that. Yeah, really. <laughs> but Steve, you were not just a fan 
of Groucho Marx, but you said upstairs a fanatic, and you, he was sort of very elusive to you because he was a figure around LA, but you didn't get to meet him for a little while. I was sure I would never get to meet him. I was certain of it because he was already in his 80s and in ill health. And uh, I had been a, a Groucho fanatic, really uh, an obsessive fan before it was fashionable. But uh, I didn't want to marry him or murder him. I just wanted to shake his hand and thank him for duck soup. And I would get all of these reports from people saying, oh, I was walking along a park, Santa Monica near Rodeo, and there was Groucho and his little beret. And I would think, should I camp out there? <laughs> bring a sleeping bag? And then a friend of mine and I went to a pizzeria in, in Beverly Hills called Jacopo's, and they had a Groucho special on the menu, and I thought, well, you can go to Nate and Al's Delicatessen, and they have an Eddie Cantor, but he's been dead for years. So. <laughs> I said to the waitress, does Groucho Marx really come in here? And she said, oh yes, he was in, let me see, yesterday. <laughs> and he always comes in right after we open, and he always tries to pay with a hundred dollar bill, and he knows I can't make change. He's so funny. And I, and I wanted to strangle her, and I wanted to say, why is Groucho wasted on this waitress? I'm not a fan. Um, there was, and still is, a motion picture called Animal Crackers that hadn't been seen in decades. And uh, it had been made at Paramount in 1930. And then when MCA Universal bought the old Paramount films in the late 50s, it was included in that package. However, the, basically because of a clerical error, the rights to the film, the copyright had expired and reverted to the authors and composers of the original play, George Kaufman, Maury Riskind, Hold your applause till the end. Bert Kalmer and Harry Ruby. And Universal didn't think there was any point in spending good money to bring out a 1930 Marx Brothers movie because oh. they had, you know, Airport 75. What? <laughs> and all my friends and I wanted to see this movie. And uh, I came up with the idea. I was, I was a history student at UCLA of starting up a petition drive and uh, uh, to, to put pressure on Universal to show them that there were people that wanted to see this old movie that hadn't been in theaters in decades, hadn't been shown on television. And um, I was able to get in touch with Aaron Fleming, who was the young actress who had started as Groucho's secretary but became his manager and really in charge of his life towards the end. And so she and I would have phone calls talking about the Animal Crackers campaign. And one time I said, how's Groucho? And she said, here. And I hear, hello? <laughs> and I said, hi, hi Groucho, how are you doing? And she said, how am I doing what? <laughs> I said, how are you doing whatever you're doing? And he said, I'm telephoning. How are you, what are you doing? And I said, I'm telephoning too. It certainly is a small world. And then he said, all right, I'll let you speak it with my secretary, Miss Fleming. And, you know, my heart was pounding. 
but I had gotten to talk to Groucho, so I'm getting closer. And uh, there was a day when she brought Groucho to UCLA. We had a table on Bruin Walk. There were all these petition tables that for gay rights and ending the war and uh, legalizing marijuana and the Hare Krishnas, and then this table of people trying to get an old Marx Brothers movie. <laughs> Groucho came to UCLA, and I said, Groucho, I am very happy to be meeting you after all this time. And he said, well, you should be. <laughs> and Aaron said, this is Steve Stolier. He's the one who's trying to get animal crackers re-released. And Groucho said, well, did you get it? And I said, uh, no, but we're working on it. And he said, well, you better or I'll fire you. <laughs> and I said, I didn't realize I was working for you. How much are you paying me? And he said, a little less than nothing. <laughs> and we were off and running. And my heart was pounding out of my chest. Uh, there was such a crush of students hanging on his every word because he, you know, he had a sort of whispery voice toward the end. I remember some kid yelling out, I can't hear you. And Groucho said, you're very fortunate. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, one of the reporters said, Mr. Marks, what is the purpose of your meeting, of your appearance here today? I expect to get lunch. <laughs> and she said, no, but I mean, beyond that, I may get dinner. <laughs> gabbing away and I'm like pinching myself this is happening and you know they're talking well, what do you think of what the young people are doing and, and the big fans of the Marx Brothers after all these years and Groucho said well I'm going to be flattered by it he said last Halloween there were three kids that came to my door dressed as Hoppo and Chico and Groucho and I said what did you give them and he said I sent for the police <laughs> So, uh, Universal didn't like being embarrassed by this kid and his friends, and they relented and cleared the rights to bring the movie out. And they, they, would, they would bring it out at the UA Westwood and have a premiere in New York also, and that was it, and they didn't want to hear about it. And it ended up breaking the house record at the UA Westwood that had been set, set by the press, excuse me, never buy your teeth in the mail, <laughs> by French Connection several years earlier. And it was, you know, beyond gratifying to be able to see there on the marquee the four Marsh Brothers and Animal Crackers and a long line of guys in, in tennis shoes and t-shirts and blue jeans showing Universal that people did care about old movies back then. And uh, I had a few summer jobs fall through that year, 74, uh, for which I remain eternally grateful. And I thought, well, I have nothing left to lose, and I, I really don't want to lose this connection. So I called Aaron Fleming, and I said, is there anything at all that you think I might be able to do? She said, well, actually, we need someone to handle Groucho's fan mail which has gotten quite a bit because of all the interest in the Marx Brothers, and we need someone who really knows their Marx Brothers to handle and organize all of his memorabilia that's going to be donated to the Smith's son. And I'm thinking, please, 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 please,
And it, it, in my mind's eye, it's like a Tex Avery cartoon where she's still on the phone talking to me and I'm on the front door knocking. <laughs> and I thought uh, I have died and gone to heaven because yeah. it was at his house and, and uh, I was there for the last two years of his life. They had a lovemaking scene that they actually made love. They were actually having, your daughter's here, they were actually having sex. Um, <laughs> was a child here to make me feel guilty um, but they, they, they were actually having sex and they supposedly cut the scene so just real quick when we were last night uh, watching uh, what were we watching last night the movie that I introduced yesterday that had the the train say Penny Serenade so we're watching Penny Serenade and there's a, a moment where uh, the train pulls out and, and and Irene Dunn doesn't get off the train she stays in the in the cabin with Cary Grant and I've updated my daughter that they, they, they have a baby and as soon as the train pulls away and the screen goes to black uh, my daughter says well I guess I know how they got the baby <laughs> she knows she knows, she knows. Yeah. yeah so what I'm saying is it's unclear so you'll see it you'll get it when you watch this movie and by the way so Elizabeth Taylor won the Oscar for this right yeah yeah uh, this was her fourth consecutive nomination uh, Raintree uh, County uh, uh, really? Cat on a Hot Tin Roof yes uh, suddenly last summer Oh yeah, and this well, that's, one, there we go, four that's, in a row. Yeah. Written and directed by your your your, your great uncle. Yeah, that's um, right. Also the Joseph. other Mankowitz. That's what we call Joe. The other man. Yeah. Well, he you know, I love Suddenly Last Summer. And supposedly she got this Oscar because she didn't get it for Suddenly Last Summer, but I don't think that's she'd that's, been she'd been ill and, and it had been four in a row and she feels like it was a sympathy vote. Probably. Well, at least she knows. At least she, at least she feels that way. At least she's honest about it. Because she hated this movie, by hated the way. She right. hated it. She, even after she won the Oscar, she was like, It stinks! <laughs> I hate, hate it! <laughs> I, Butterfield, ain't under any messages! So, you didn't know I did Liz Taylor, huh? <laughs> It's actually borders on chilly winters, but so, this is why I picked it. You did. This is why. This is why. But I, it was entertaining. I did love it. So thank you for this gift of Butterfield Eight. I got a couple of objections to this movie. Okay, go. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, uh, Lawrence Harvey, who is a, it's a fight every time I say Lawrence Harvey, not to say Raymond Massey. It's been that way for 20 years at TCM. You know, basically the same age, black hair, names have the same cadence. Raymond, Massey, Lawrence, Harvey. I just, it's in my head. I know that they're not the same. There's nothing about them that's the same, but it's hard for me Wait, every time. they're not the same age. Raymond Massey's way older than Lawrence Harvey, don't, don't you think? I don't think way. Well, I'm way older than you, but You're yet... way older than just about everybody in this room. But I look fantastic! <laughs> Uh, so much so that I went up to Wyatt McRae and said that I really thought that his father's performance in the Oxbow incident was, <laughs> was a little embarrassing. It was, but I knew it came out of my mouth. 
Right. I was like, I've done it again. I've done my Joel McCree, Dan Andrews mistake. Well, no one told you to go up to So, anyway, so the objection is that we get Lawrence Harvey, and he's, uh, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's an objectionable character in this movie. I mean, why she is in love with this guy that bothered my wife, but she just said this. Uh, uh, was like, why this guy? She could have any. She looks like Elizabeth Taylor, right? And so she's with Lawrence Harvey. Right? Yes, Lawrence is with the Lawrence Harvey. Right? Not Raymond Massey. And then we learn at the end when his wife, uh, Dina Merrill. I love Dina Merrill, by the way. Uh, when she, she starts calling him Wes. How is his name Wes? His name is Wes? Wes. <laughs> That is not what his name is. Well, that's, that's one no. of the many reasons why this movie's just completely nuts. It's just completely... Anybody here named Wes? Anybody? Your name is Wes? Your name's not Wes? Nobody is really hot for a guy named Wes. But, by the way, I'll tell you something. Lawrence Harvey, like, like is, 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 is conventionally good looking, he's a handsome dude, but there's no heat. Do you know what I'm saying? There's no heat. Like, there's no, there's no like, oh, you know, you don't go, wow, that's a guy. I, I don't know why she's in love with him. No, it doesn't make, that part doesn't make sense. That's uh, one, it's a major flaw in the movie. I mean, he's a heel and, and, and doesn't have the, the thing that might make a woman ignore the fact that a guy's a heel. By the way, a guy who had that quality was going to play the Annie Fisher part, uh, but, but Liz insisted on Annie. Oh, yeah. uh, David Jansen. One of my favorite actors. I love David Jansen. David Jansen was making that he, guy had heat. He, he did have heat. I agree. Here's my question: Did they were they married at this point, or is this where the affair they were married. started? They were, they were married, married at this point. Yeah, yeah. So the affair started before. Yeah, because she went right after this movie. She went to make you know Cleopatra, and that was seven it. and a half years, and oh. then then the other man, the other man, that one, then she met that other guy. Um, the, uh, so, um, the, uh, and then the other thing you object to, which is a great little thing in movies, is she's calling the exchange, she calls Butterfield 8, right, she says, hey, it's Gloria, uh, listen, if, uh, Mr., uh, what's his name in the movie, what's Wes's last name? Uh, Liggett. 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 She goes, if Mr. Liggett calls, I want to take that call, uh, reach me wherever I am. I know, how the hell are we gonna, for you, there's no cell phone. <laughs> wherever she is? Wherever she is, and what, yeah, you find me wherever I am. I mean, you don't, I don't know where you're gonna be, Liz. Anybody know where you're gonna be? Do you have a beeper? It's four beepers, too. I mean, I, how, do you have, like, it's, it's, you have an antenna up your ass? I mean, where, Yeah, and, then, and then there's an inside joke in the movie next to the bank of elevators in the building. There's a, uh, uh, a directory for the building there, and I think she's maybe going to see her, her therapist or whatever. Oh, yes. And, uh, and, um, uh, and it says, there's a list of names, and we see the bees, and on the last name of the bees, it says Ben-Hur, in quotes. But there's no room, and that's just because the movie, I guess, had been the, you know, was a, 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 released the year before, right? That's all it was. It's like, that's the inside joke. It's not a great joke. No, it's yeah. not a great joke. It, what, what, she, went, she was going to see her therapist, right? She went to see her therapist, right? Here and by the way, yes. uh, uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful uh, actress here tonight uh, named Joan, Joan Bennett Steiner. Benedict. 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 Benedict Steiner. Joan Benedict Steiner. Where's she She there? played the secretary to the psychiatrist, and she was Miss Taylor's stand-in. Because Miss Taylor was missing for a few days off this off this picture, and some of the back shots are... Joan Benedict Steiger, at one point Steiger, because at one point you were married to Roy Steiger, to Rod Steiger. Rod Steiger. To Roy, oh, one point she was married to Roy Steiger. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you did it again.
again. And the great Rod Steiger, that's fantastic. Oh my gosh, you know, that's fantastic. Yeah, so the, some of the bad shots of Liz Taylor, it, it, it's Joan. It's it's Joan. Because, and, you know, that's, um, she was missing for a few days. I'll be away, don't find me, you know. <laughs> no matter where I am, just let Joan do it. <laughs> I won't be there. Eddie and I are together, and we're not coming back to this stinking picture. It's like the worst Liz Taylor ever, but I'm glad you're laughing. It's got, it's got energy. It's got heat. Okay, I think we should. Uh, I, think I think let's show the picture. Show and the I picture. thank you for this, and you know I adore you. That's all. Adore you. Diana, what a lovely introduction. It's almost worth getting up at this hour of the morning to do. Uh, who are you people? How'd you get in my room? Um, as, as Dean Martin used to say. Uh, well, you're the Weekend Warriors, and uh, you, came, you came out for, of course, the, the right movie. Um, how do we sum it up in one word? The word is Lubitsch. And, um, I had the uh, great honor of uh, talking to Billy Wilder on a couple of occasions. Uh, not extensively and not long conversations, but meaningful ones to me. And uh, I was trying to pay him a compliment on Love in the Afternoon. And I said, it was such a, a Lubitsch film. He said, well, he says, you could be Lubitsch-like, but there's only one Lubitsch. And he, uh, he, he felt that Lubitsch was the master. And many, many people agree. Uh, this film is interesting because it, it, it's from what uh, most people would call the last phase or stage of his career. Uh, he had his, the films he made in Germany, his silent films once he came to Hollywood, uh, those glorious early talkies at Paramount, uh, and then he moved to MGM for a couple more you know, great films, Ninochka, Shop Around the Corner, and then uh, independent producers made the brilliant to be or not to be. And then he was hired by Daryl Zanuck, a 20th Century Fox. And Zanuck, who thought the world of Lubitsch, uh, gave him pretty much carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. And so this is an original screenplay that uh, the director himself wrote with his longtime collaborator and friend, Samson Rafelson. Rafelson has a list of credits as varied and as long as, uh, as any writer in Hollywood history. Uh, and from the jazz singer to, uh, you know, to Suspicion, Hitchcock, and on and on and on. And even writers on Lubitsch films said, well, there's nothing without him. Even films that didn't bear his official Screen by screenplay by credit, still essentially uh, should have been credited to him, and that that's not my saying. So that's the actual writers, and writers don't give up credit easily. Uh, I uh, they they based it on a play. They found a Hungarian play that uh, gave them a, a starting point, and I find that so interesting that he and like his disciple Billy Wilder, always liked to have that kind of a starting point from which they could extrapolate and vary and go in different directions. Sometimes 
so much so that you couldn't recognize the original. But it, it gave them a, a foundation to build on. And he was not thinking of casting Don Amici in the lead. He had other actors in mind. But Mr. Zanuck asked if he would please at least do a screen test with Amici. And uh, the story that Scott Eyman tells in his wonderful book on Ernst Lubitsch is that uh, the director looked at the uh, rushes of the screen test with uh, Walter Reich, his longtime uh, com uh, comrade, and said, Walter, Walter, what am I going to do? He's good. <laughs> so he was not only obliged to cast, but he was happy to cast Don Amici in the lead. And they got on famously. And uh, of course, it's in glorious Technicolor, but he was praised even at that time for uh, its somewhat muted use of Technicolor. Uh, it was not garish, and uh, as many Fox movies of the 40s were, proudly garish. <laughs> it was the studio of Carmen Miranda, after all. <laughs> and, um, but here, it's, it's a more subdued palette, and um, everything just fits into place in this movie. It's, uh, it's adult, it's intelligent, it's witty, uh, it's uh, a film that dares to go dark at times, and it's some of its uh, tone and its undertone about the, the sort of the underside of, of the American success story. Uh, that uh, Michi and his family represent. Uh, so there's satire in it, very, you know, very pointed social satire. Uh, and it was a hit. It was not just a just success d'esteem, as they say, you know, that the critics fawned over. Everybody liked it. And uh, so how, how could you do better? This is, uh, this is as good as it gets. I. I don't know what uh, young film students of today or young audiences of today, unaccustomed to this kind of witty and intelligent <coughs> writing and performing, would make of this uh, if they're not conditioned to it. I mean, you, you can you can acquire the uh, the means to appreciate films like this which is why TCM is so important in our culture. Uh, but how you come to it is, 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 a, is a question I can't answer right now. All I can say is, uh, uh, you know, if you set your sights high or high enough and aspire to do something like this, uh, you're going in the right direction. Uh, and you all showing up here early Sunday morning for this shows that you've come to the right place at the right time. Thank you so much for uh, hearing me out and have a good time with Heaven Can Wait. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Genevieve, for just being you and putting this phenomenal event together. We all love you and appreciate you. 
just anecdotally talking to a lot of you this weekend, I knew a lot of you were very excited about this, what's happening right now, and I can tell by how full this room is that that's the truth. And guess what? I get it. Me too. As you all know, my two favorite things are musicals and the Oscars. Well, guess what? Here's someone who's a musical star with two Oscar nominations. So it takes all my boxes. Please help me welcome one of the stars of Bye Bye Bernie, the fabulous Anne Margaret. Um, he 
He was at a club, and I was there dancing with someone. I know who it was, but no, I, I knew who it was. I knew it was. Uh, and he saw me there, and that's when he won. He thought of me being in Bye Bye Birdie. That was about six months before we started. Did you ever get a chance to see it performed on Broadway? No. Wow. No, I didn't. That's so interesting. What would you say, because when you watch this film, what I love about the character of Kim McAfee as played by you, is that there's an innocence to her, but she's no pushover. You know, she's really got these two different sides to her. Was that a challenge to play, or was it particularly fun to play? Oh, dear. Well, there's this, there's me, like right now, and then there's another side of me, uh, where, I got the music in me. I got the music in me. I've seen Tommy. <laughs> You guys know so much about about uh, uh, movies and actors and actresses. Wow, and directors and everything. Yeah, they really it's do. so great to be in front of you guys. Ooh, I love you. Um, if, if I had to pick maybe a, a favorite, a kind of standout moment from Bye Bye Birdie, it's probably got a lot of living to do. And I'm just mesmerized by your dancing in that sequence. And that was just curiosity, is anyone gonna see Bye Bye Birdie for the first time right now? No shame if, it, if the answer is yes. Not many, not many. Right, that's really not a surprise. Um, what, what was that scene like for you to do with all, with all those great dance moves? Was that a, a, a challenge to learn them all or did you already have them in your skill set and repertoire? Well, we, oops, sorry, someone used to be front of a microphone, <laughs> right? Uh, um, we did we did that number in, in three weeks, and it was Ona White, and she at the time had broken her leg, so she was sitting, you know, like this, uh, you know, choreographing the whole thing, and uh, Hanson, I remember Hanson, he uh, he was the one that. She, was up showing me all this stuff. I had a great time. Just a fantastic time. We can tell when we want. Oh, good. So, good. in the way that Kim is just a huge fan of Conrad Birdie, who was that person for you at the time? Who, who were you head over heels over at that time? Of course it was supposed to be Elvis. And uh, I had not met him. I, uh, but the next movie that I did was Viva Las Vegas. And it just was so strange. Uh, and I just met him right before we started doing Viva Las Vegas. Yeah. I would love to know what he thought of Conrad Birdie. Did he get the joke? I, uh, well, he was—he uh, had such a great sense of humor. He—he 
he went with the flow. He, he was, he was great. Just great. I love it. There's so many priceless performances in this film. I mean, Paul Lind. <laughs> we were laughing constantly, constantly laughing. Uh, he just was a little naughty, too. Yeah. He would say things that you didn't expect to come out of his mouth. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm laughing now. I also, of course, love Maureen Stapleton in this film. Oh, my goodness, every yes. Moment. Yes. So yes. What, was, what was she like? Oh, everybody was so loving. Uh, and she had a great sense of humor, too. I love it. I'd be curious to know, I mean, the, the beginning two minutes and the ending two minutes of this film, with you running back and forth toward the camera, all the great energy. It's such a fascinating story in that how that was kind of added yes. after, after the principal photography of the shoot, they added those two scenes. What was going through your mind when you heard they wanted to create these fabulous bookends with you? Well, bless you. Uh, it, it was Mr. Sidney's idea, and I had tremendous respect and admiration for him. All of his ideas, uh, um, my goodness, so many things. Uh, so many things have happened. I see you. I see you. I was being very stealth. But did you, did you feel, I know this is 60 years ago, I don't expect you to remember everything, but did you feel like more pressure on the day that you shot those two sequences, the beginning sequence and the end sequence, because they were so important to the film? Well, it was three or four months after the film had, uh, finished shooting and uh, I had gone down to my original brunette color which is not now <laughs> and so I had to go up again to redhead uh, <laughs> but it was all exciting it was all really exciting and I knew Mr. Sidney knew what he was doing um, it had never been done before, but his mind, you know, he always had these great ideas. It shows. So, listen, before we watch the movie, you and I have something in common. We are both April babies. So my, my birthday was last week, but it's not about me. Your birthday is coming up at the end of the month. You may or may not know this, but Turner Classic Movies has a sister TV channel, which is the Food Network. So we enlisted Sherry Yard, who is one of the stars of the Great American Baking Show, and also the person who bakes all the chocolate Oscars every year at the Governor's Ball. And she was so inspired by you and your legs in this movie that we have a little something to surprise you with. So I hope you will all join me in a little song that goes like, Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday in my 
always make the same wish, but uh, I never tell anybody. <laughs> You know how much I love all the movies from the 80s, so I'm very excited to be here. And some, to paraphrase Risky Business, sometimes you just have to say, ladies and gentlemen, Rebecca DeMornay. <laughs> Welcome. We're so happy you're here. Looks like you had a really good time last night on the opening night, and I'm thrilled. So welcome. So fun seeing oh. Angie Dickinson talk. It's amazing. She's I know it. Does it feel like this was 40 years ago? Does that blow your mind? <laughs> wow. You don't look like it. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, it it feels like it was a while ago. Me back to that time. You're in your early 20s. You've done a one-line role in One from the Heart, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. You're studying at Lee Strasberg. Where's your mind at at that point? Are you feeling like great things are on the way? Did this come as a surprise? Where were you at this moment? I was really, really trying to um, see if I could be one of the people that actually made it in Hollywood. I came from nothing. Um, I had grown up in Europe and uh, I just had this idea that I should be uh, the leading role in a movie, which is what I told a casting director and they're like, you gotta pay your dues first and do the roles. And I said, I think I should be, um, I think I wanted to be the leading role in a movie. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then uh, this, I saw this script of Risky Business on a friend's couch. Um, and I read it and I thought, this is my part. This is definitely my part. And I'd only done this one line in Francis Coppola's One from the Heart. And uh, I had an agent at the time uh, who had somehow gotten, don't know how. Um, and she brought my name up. They saw me. And Paul Brickman, who wrote it and directed it, was I was the last person they saw in Los Angeles. They'd seen everyone they wanted to see in New York and Chicago and Los Angeles, I think 400 young women. Oh my God. And I was the last person to walk in and Paul Breckman wanted me. And I auditioned five times because um, they had to be sure this, you know, the people who were financing the movie wanted somebody with a name. And um, it came down to this screen test that I guess is available on the 25th anniversary DVD. It's also on YouTube. Oh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> the screen test was at six in the morning at the producer Steve Tisch's house. Uh, Tom flew in from The Outsiders where he was shooting. And the two of us, um, he walked in, we had never met. And he looked really sort of, you know, he was, it was very early in the morning, he'd just gotten off a plane. And I looked at him and I said, this, is a chemistry test, so let's get some chemistry going fast. <laughs> I swear to God. And um, and he just looked at me. It's so Lana. I know. And he looked at me startled like Joel. And we did the screen test. And after the screen test, at some point, I don't remember how many days later, 
I got a phone call in my apartment in West Hollywood where I was living, and it was Paul Breckman. And he said, I guess you're Lana. And um, it was the most exciting moment of my life. It was just at that point, right. since I've had children, that's more exciting. <laughs> but at that point, it was. You know, we were talking about this before we came down here. The role of Lana is so different from the typical 80s female lead in a young interest film. How much of that do you like to think is you because of what you brought to it, and how much of it is what was in Paul Brickman's script? I think it's 100% um, in Paul Brickman's mind. He, he conceived of the script. He played me after he cast me. I said, what's the tone of this film? And he said, listen to the song, and it was in the air tonight by Phil Collins. I said, oh, so it's kind of moody, melancholy. He said, yes, it's like a treatise. Uh, it's, it's a treatise on capitalism in the guise. I don't know if he said that or I just thought that, actually. But that's what I think. The treatise on capitalism in the guise of a coming-of-age movie. And, but it's very bittersweet, and it's not like a, you know, sort of in-your-face, like losing-your-virginity kind of movie. Um, and I think it's all Paul, but it's also his choice of Tangerine Dream to score it. Because the score just still kind of rocks me. And also his cinematographers, uh, Ray Villalobos and Bruce Surtees, who gave that sort of very moody, romantic look to something that could have been sort of more straight-ahead, uh, commercial-looking. Well, it also plays with this whole kind of motif or trope of, you know, the hooker with the heart of gold. This, exactly. That's that's not what's going on here. This <laughs> this character is so much more complex yeah. than what we've seen before. Yeah, and, and that's what Paul wanted. And, you know, I came to realize that was my very first film, my first role, but I came to realize that that's when a movie really connects, is when the, the, the key elements of the director, the writer, the actors, um, are all dreaming the same dream. And we were. Like, I saw the movie ahead of time the way it turned out. That usually does not happen. Um, and we were. I saw what Paul wanted, and, and we did it. So I love any movie that has music as a big part of it, which you've just alluded to. Of course, there's also the Bob Seger moment with Tom Cruise. And in the script, that was just written as Joel dances to rock and roll music. And then it was from there that that whole sequence came about. Did you hear during the filming that it had turned out the way it was? Did, or did you experience that all-time rock and roll moment when you watched the finished product? Uh, not at all. As a matter of fact, I was part of that scene, even though I'm not in the scene. Paul dragged me to the rehearsal that he had with Tom oh. at the, in the living room set. And there was a big debate about whether it's going to be um, the Bob Seger song or a Rolling Stones song? And he, took, he wanted to know what we thought, and I said, well, I think maybe the Rolling Stones would be great. <laughs> and um, he tried both, and Tom was very a very naturally gifted dancer uh, at that point, even. And he moved more confidently and more sort of funny to the Bob Seger song. So that became the vote of all three of us. Wow. Yeah. I find it very intriguing because this movie is so perfect and the direction is so great and the writing is so great that Paul Brickman only directed two feature films. It was this one and then Men Don't Leave with Jessica Lange 
which is also just such a lovely movie from 1990, two wonderful films. Does that surprise you as much as it surprises me? No, I thought Paul was, um, I really related to him, but he, he's very, um, he's a very hidden kind of person. He reminded me of what maybe J.D. Salinger would have been like if he was a screenwriter, which would never have happened. But he, he's very reclusive, he's very shy, he's very, very smart, and he, I don't, I'd never expected that he would not work more but I know that everybody wanted to work with him afterwards, that he turned out movies with you know, Robert De Niro and Meryl Streep, I, I heard. He just, he just didn't feel like it. <laughs> uh, By the way, just on a side note, I just went and saw his granddaughter, his granddaughter, who was uh, uh, an alternate in the starring role of the little girl in The Secret Garden, downtown. Um, Paul Brickman's granddaughter, so yeah, oh, that's great. she's cool. Um, you said I could, it would be okay if I asked you this question, so I'm yeah. going to ask you this question. I didn't know until researching for today that you and Tom Cruise were in a two and a half year relationship after you made this movie. That was news to me. I'm fascinated by that. Was Sometimes it, life imitates art. Yeah. <laughs> was it hard to have a real life relationship with someone after living through the ultimate heightened Love affair. It was. It was such a it was such an extraordinary time for both of us. I think both of us just really, kind of, you know, just felt a lot for each other uh, after making that movie. And when the movie was so successful, it was just this huge hit, and we both became famous at that moment. And it was just an extraordinary time that I've never, you know, experienced again of just a movie being such a huge success, everyone loving the movie, and we loving each other, and loving the movie, and it was, it was really magical. It was a magical time. You can tell. <laughs> When's the last time you saw it? I don't remember, but it comes on every so often, and when I see bits of it, I go, wow, it's one of the few films that when it comes on that I'm in, that I actually want to keep watching, because it's so perfectly made. What other ones would you say fall into that category? That I'm in? Yeah, Hand the Rocks the Cradle. Hand the Rocks the Cradle, for sure. Runaway Train, I really love that movie. Um, the Trip to Bountiful. Um, uh, I love a little, thank you, a little movie I did called Getting Out, um, which was a television film, but was a really great part for me. Um, and I've just done three movies, sort of, uh, in the last year. I sort of was taking time off for a while with my children. But, Tell us about them. Um, so I just did a film, finished a film called Holly Jolly, where I play a matriarch in this Christmas comedy. My husband is played by Chris Elliott, who is so fun. Oh my God. It's going to be so fun to see this thing. Okay. And then I did a movie about the music business and the misogyny towards women, uh, starring Rainy Qualley where I play a music manager, very protective of her. Is that Andy McDowell's daughter? Yes, yes it is, yes. Um, and then prior to that, I just finished a film, a thriller called St. Clair with Bella Thorne and Ryan Philippe, um, where I play this, whatever. Um, it's, it's really interesting. Um, what would you say when people realize that you're you, <laughs> what do they want to talk about? 
Is it this? Is it Hand the Rocks the Cradle? Is it a combination of things? What do people say when they realize who It's interesting. Are? Everyone, you know, they sort of show who they are, but what film they want to talk about. <laughs> like, <laughs> when, when they're people, so men my age, they want to talk about risky business. Um, uh, then there's like really, you know, there's other kind of very sensitive, um, you know, cinema buffs that want to talk about Trip to Bountiful or Runaway Train. Um, you know, the entire LAX um, TSA people love Handle Ross Crater. <laughs> they just love how, how bad she is. So, um, yeah. Well, she's bad, but you're pretty great. Uh, Rebecca De Mornay, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. What a treat. Enjoy it, everybody. You all too. Midnight Run. I can see Midnight Run. But Midnight Run, I 
quote as well as I can quote Casablanca. And even the next weekend or the weekend after that, I saw Casablanca in college. Um, and that's when it, you know, that's when I got the tingles and realized something special was happening. What about you? Uh, it, it was weird. I was um, shopping with my mother in San Francisco at a, at a place, a long, long department store called Akron. Okay. Somebody will always applaud it, no matter what you say. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember Akron. But I remember walking through an aisle and there was this life-size poster of Rick Blank. Right? And I remember saying to my mom, who's that? And that was really one of my earliest exposures to like a movie star thing. So I mean, that's why I'm kind of, in my heart is fluttering a little bit right now, because that little kid who said, who's that guy, is now introducing this movie. <laughs> so, Excellent melodrama, 
colorful, timely background, tense moods, suspense, psychological and physical conflict, tight plotting, and this is the best part, sophisticated hook'em. <laughs> a box office natural for Bogart or Cagney or Raft in out of the usual roles, and perhaps Mary Astor. And that gets to Wallace, and he instantly likes it. About two weeks later or so, he's like, oh, we're making it. And they had to, he starts pre-production, they hadn't even uh, paid for it yet. And it turned out $20,000, which was at the time by far the most ever paid for an unproduced play. But fortunately, they brought the Epstein brothers in yep. to work on this screenplay, and they turned it into just the most magnificent screenplay. And it's so brilliantly cast from top to bottom, significantly, I think, with a lot of expatriate Europeans yeah. who, had, who had fled the Nazis that gave this film its incredible, uh, the, the gravity that comes with every player in this movie. And I believe, I think, Monica is in the house, right? Oh, Monica and in the house? Uh, uh, you were in a, a, a 
movie in 1958. I think it was featured there as slightly high school confidential. Yep. Where I would like to point out, you said uh, this line. You were undercover. Uh, I don't want to spoil. But uh, uh, Russ pretends to be a high school student. Really, he's an undercover cop. He looks like he's 14. Um, uh, but you have the line. I'm looking to graze on some grass. <laughs> <laughs> and I found it. <laughs> uh, so uh, John Drew Barrymore was in that movie. Uh, and he told you a story about his dad yeah. at this hotel. Yeah, about his dad, John Barrymore. And he said that he was in the hotel there. That's what made me think about it. Um, and he was at the bar and he got drunk. He got really drunk and they had to kick him out. And he was belligerent, and they finally threw him out. And he fell down on the sidewalk out in front of the hotel. And he looked up and saw that his star was there. <laughs> that was a great story. That, is a, that, is, uh, that, that feels like a very classic uh, John Barrymore story. <laughs> now, uh, you caught a little glimpse there in that uh, first thing of a, of a film you made uh, called The Fastest Gun Alive, where you're walking on the shovels. So, you do about a three and a half minute number in the middle of that picture. And five years ago, six years ago, it went viral on the internet, right? As uh, people discovered it. And it caused, as it, it got millions and millions of people suddenly watching this three minute clip from a moderately obscure mid 1950s film. And the reaction to it among a number of celebrities was through the roof. Uh, Stephen Weber was on Wings, great, terrific actor. Russ Hamlin, amazing. Sarah Silverman, oh my God, watch it all. <laughs> a really funny comedian, Paul F. Tompkins, this is insane, right, all in caps. And then finally, the capper from an actress uh, named uh, Amber Tamblyn. Uh, my dad is a badass. <laughs> lot of stars of your generation uh, whose kids might not be in the business or even some who are that you know they don't always they don't always have a full appreciation for their parents but you and Amber uh, you guys share that she likes to watch you work I do too <laughs> uh, it's not, uh, but nice you have a you have a, you have a, a, a nice appreciation for each other's gifts yeah that that dance on shovels by the way um, they, they tried to get a cut out of the movie. Glenn Ford tried to get a cut out. And, and they, uh, an executive at MGM told me that uh, he came up just ravaged and said, listen, I'm making a nice, simple little Western here. And they really, that's all I did in it was that, that dance. And, and it was sort of like in all Westerns, there's usually a section in there that's away from all the action where chorus girls were dancing or something on the stage. And, so they said, you know, they asked me to do a dance number, and I did that number. And then, but Glenn said, and suddenly, you know, in the middle of my simple little black and white western, this guy comes and he's dancing all over the barn and flying everywhere. And so they did cut it out for the first uh, preview. But what they couldn't cut, cut out of the preview was that in, in the credits at the end of the movie, it said Russ Tamlin's dance number choreographed by Alex Romero. So. So luckily, uh, it, when people filled out their cards, uh, 
out after seeing the movie, they said, where was his dance? <laughs> because it said, you know, dance by him, by Alex Romero. And so that was a, that was a good one for me, anyway, to put it back in. I mean, so, and there's no trickery, there's a couple edits in it, but there's no, I mean, like you, there's a, there's a seesaw, there's a couple of little bits on the seesaw where you jump and the girl flies through the air and you catch it. It's amazing. And then another one where somebody jumps down from up top from like a railing onto the thing and you go up onto the railing. I mean, yeah, I know. I, I, and I even now look at it and wonder, how the hell did I do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did another trick in, in Seven Brides where I, where I got kicked out and I grabbed a rope and climbed up it. And, and it was on the side of the board, and I was able to flip up over the top to get to the top. And I still don't know how I did that. <laughs> when you're performing, you get an extra strength. It has caused uh, uh, millions of people, fan, including serious fans of these movies, to think of you as a dancer. And obviously, you do dance, but that you're 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 a gymnast. Really, a, a tumbler. That's really what I was, as a gymnast and a street dancer. I, you know, just loved to dance, but I never, I didn't take take lessons or anything. And I wasn't supposed to dance even in uh, Seven Brides or Seven Brothers. Michael Kidd wanted all the brothers to be, except for Howard Kidd, but he wanted the rest of the brothers all to be uh, bright dancers, like Jacques Dembois from the New York City Ballet and Mark Platt. And, and so anyway, uh, I wasn't even supposed to dance in it, and the studio said, look, you can have six, four, you can have four great dancers, and then two actors that, uh, and then we're leaving Howard out of this, but, and then two actors that are under contract here, that'll just be acting parts, and, uh, and I was one of those actors, but I happened to go on the set when they, they were rehearsing, and, and uh, I, I went with Jeff Richards, and we went over to uh, to meet them all and, and see them all. And uh, Michael Kidd asked me and said, "I understand you can do a, that you can you're an acrobat, you can do flips." And I said, "Yeah, and I right on the spot and did a backflip." And he said, "Oh my God, we're going to put that in a number." And I said, "No, I don't want to dance with Jacques Demboise." <laughs> but uh, so I finally did it and told people. I guess that was on the, the screen too. That I told people that I, I was not a, a dancer and never had lessons, but I did have on-job um, training with all these great uh, choreographers. Right, all your movies, and I've seen you jump all over things and do acrobatics. But he said uh, in West Side Story, Riff does, is straight dancing. There'll be no acrobatics at all. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll do my best and. Uh, it wasn't until we went to New York and it, it, it spent too long in New York. So uh, we got back to the studio and uh, uh, they said, well, we're closing down for another couple of weeks and we didn't know what was going on. And uh, Phil Gersh, my agent, said, yeah, they're, they don't, they're trying to figure out what to do now that Jerry is taking too much time uh, uh, directing. And he did, he, he made shoot shoot. He shot stuff uh, that was that took forever to. Well, tell that. So there's one story. The, the sort of a, a, a big number in New York toward the end of your time there in New York at what is now Lincoln Center, uh, and then you guys do it. Robert Wise thinks it's great. You guys nail it. The big number, and, and then, but Jerry wants to have everybody do it the on other the way. other foot. On the other. I, if you're a dancer, you don't know how hard that is. You know to do to do like a tertiate and do all these dances 
dance steps down the street. <laughs> I could barely do the ones in one way, you know. <laughs> but we went all the way down the street and everybody, all the dancers were going crazy. So it took forever for, to learn how to do it right, you know, on, on the other foot. And, uh, and it was no point, nobody rehearsed this, right? It was just... No, this just happened when we were in New York and it was, uh, it, it just, it took a lot of time. And, and he took a lot of time. Uh, but you know, I mean, who's going to argue with him? He's he was one of one of he was a great you know was a, he was a great choreographer and did some good things. But you and you and you and Rita have said that that he was tough, tough. George Chigiris is a little he has, he's more gentle in his memories. Uh, but you and you, uh, well you okay well you and you and Rita feel uh, like you're being uh, honest that he was really tough to work for. Oh, he was really tough. I had a big argument with him, oddly enough, the first the first time I had a, a line, or did, we did all the... We, you have the first line of the movie. Yeah, I think it was. It is, you have the first snap, and it wasn't and the first line. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't even a line. Right, it was just a grunt. Right. <laughs> so I run up with, I, I come face to face with George Shakiris with Bernardo, and uh, my line was <laughs> like that, you know? and and uh, so I did it, and then Jerry came in and said, "No, Russ," he said, the, "It's it's like the end of a, of a, in the music. You got to understand it. The music goes da 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 da, you know, and that's the way it was done on the stage." And I said. Jerry, I, I understand how it was done on the stage, but this isn't the stage. This is a camera right in my face, you know? And they're shooting, in, and I said, I'm not gonna look in the camera and go, ha! You know, this is so silly. And so we argued about it, we walked down the block arguing about it, and uh, he said it was the way, part of the music, and, and uh, finally Bob Wise came and said, hey, listen, you know, we gotta get working here. The time's going by. He mm -hmm. said, listen, why don't we shoot it both ways? We'll shoot it both ways and then figure out which one's the best. So I did it both ways and they ended up using, using mine. Yeah.